Central to the human experience is mankind's search for God. Now, everyone in the modern Western world has at some point heard the metaphor to describe this of a mountain. The metaphor goes something like this. There are tons and tons of different pathways to get to the top of the mountain, which represents God or enlightenment or nirvana or whatever the goal of spirituality is for you. And all of these different pathways, these different belief systems, some might be meandering, they might look a little bit different, but all of them are eventually heading towards the same spot. Now, on the surface, that sounds like a really positive image. It's like, hey, everyone's eventually going to get to God. It doesn't matter which religion you choose, they're all headed in the same direction. The problem is, there's a dark side to this image too that doesn't usually get talked about. I mean, what it's saying is that God sits distant from humanity at the top of a mountain, looking down, and all of the work of trying to close the distance between God and man is on humanity. It's on us. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a busy guy. I've got a family, I've got a job, my life is full, and I'm certainly not able or willing to dedicate all of my ingenuity and energy to the quest to achieve God, to find God, to climb that mountain. I mean, most of us, if not all of us, are a little bit too selfish and a little bit too distracted to give all of ourselves to that journey up that metaphorical mountain. And think also of the description of God that's kind of subtly contained in this image. I mean, it pictures a God who sits with cross-armed indifference atop a mountain, looking way down at ant-like humanity on the ground and saying, hey, I created you, and you know maybe I've got some rules for you to follow, things to do and not to do, but ultimately, when it comes to you and I communing, it's gonna be up to you to get to me. I'll wait. That's the image of God that this metaphor describes. Now, fortunately for Christians, the Christian description of God and humanity and the pathway between us is completely different. And it centers around a person named Jesus and a theological concept that we call the incarnation. Now, when it comes to Jesus, it's incredibly common to hear things like, Jesus was a great teacher, a good man, depending on the religion you come from, maybe even that he was an enlightened human being or a prophet worthy of some measure of reverence. Now that all sounds really positive and really nice, but the kind of unspoken caveat to all of those statements is that, well, he might've been a good teacher, a great guy, a prophet, but he was certainly not God. The problem with that is that Christians have from the very beginning, not merely revered Jesus as a prophet, but have in fact worshiped him as a God. This is articulated really beautifully and famously in the very first verse of John's gospel, where John writes, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now he's gonna go on later in that chapter to articulate really clearly that the word he's talking about is the man, Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus was in fact, God. Now, that seems simple enough. The problem is, just a few verses later in verse 14, John's also going to say, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, this God, this eternal God who was God from the beginning, took on human flesh and became a human being. And this is where we get our word incarnation. 
The incarnation simply means to become flesh, to be enfleshed. It's the image that's meant to describe the eternal God taking on the meat of humanity. And just like talking about the Trinity last week, we are entering into incredibly deep theological waters that we're really only going to be able to dip our toes into. But the incredible thing about the incarnation is, like the Trinity, to understand it is not just theological thinking. It's incredibly good news that will impact your life. Now, the claim that Jesus is fully human is something that's taught all throughout the Gospels. Jesus is portrayed as a man. He eats he sleeps, he gets hungry and tired and thirsty. He grows, and he doesn't just grow physically, it says that he grows in knowledge and stature, meaning he learns things. There are things that Jesus doesn't know that he then learns. And most famously and most significantly, at the end of his life, he will bleed, suffer, and die. Jesus was human. Now this can be incredibly difficult for the Christian to wrap our heads around. Many of us, especially in the Western tradition, have grown very used to picturing Jesus as this kind of like, just completely spiritual floating automaton that just radiates pure spirituality. And you could never picture him doing something like coughing or sneezing or telling a joke or tripping and falling. But to understand the humanity of Jesus and to really connect to the fact that he truly was a man is incredibly essential. John writes in one of his letters, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now where things begin to get complicated is when we ask the question, how does this work? Christians believe that Jesus has two natures. His God nature and human nature united in one person. Now, the fancy theological term for this is called the hypostatic union. And it's a big, weird word, but it's actually worth understanding. The Greek word hypostasis refers to the substance or concrete reality of something, what something truly is at the deepest level. Hebrews 11 famously says that faith is the hypostasis of things hoped for. It is a confident, solid trust that rests upon a concrete reality. Earlier in the same book, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his hypostasis. He's saying that Jesus is a perfect representation of the substance of what God actually is. So the hypostatic union is about how that hypostasis, that true nature of God, is united with true humanity in the person of Jesus. Now, how that works, and maybe more importantly, how that doesn't work, has been the subject of tons of debate throughout church history and has led to some of Christianity's most infamous heresies, heresies that continue to pop up under new names to this day. So some people tried to say that Jesus wasn't actually human. He just was God in the appearance of humanity, almost like a puppet or an illusion. It was the appearance of a human, but was actually only God's nature. Other people tried to say the exact opposite, that Jesus was actually just a human who achieved some kind of special status or special union with God, but wasn't actually God in his very nature. Other people tried to say that the two natures, the God nature, and the human nature were both there in the person of Jesus, but remained distinct and separate, not in any way united. 
Now, this might sound like it's just a bunch of theological hair splitting, like who cares how exactly the hypostatic union works. The problem is, if you actually drill down into these and the other heresies, they cause real significant ground-level problems. Let's take just one example. In this view, that, God, that Jesus was only God and wasn't actually human, this was called docetism in the early church, can that God, can that Jesus, actually die for you? If he's just the appearance of a human being, but not actually human, then what died on the cross? How can that being that's just God pretending to be human actually represent you, actually relate to you? This version of Jesus cannot die for you and cannot save you. Now, in response to these and many other false teachings, Christians have faithfully said that Jesus is fully God and fully man, two natures united in one person without confusion. Now, of course, this picture, like any picture, is going to be inadequate to fully illustrate the mystery of the hypostatic union. Again, we're just dipping our toes into very deep theological waters here. But here's the thing. The incarnation is not just theological exercises for us to make our brains smarter with. The incarnation is actually incredibly good news. And the fact that Jesus is both fully God and fully man is good news for us for more reasons than we even have time to articulate today. But here are just a couple of them. First of all, because Jesus was truly fully human, it makes him able to be an adequate and right substitute for humanity. Paul says that Jesus, that in Jesus, God was able to make atonement for sins in the flesh, not just in a puppet of humanity. The fact that he was truly human means that he can stand in our place and make atonement for our sins. Secondly, the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man makes him the perfect mediator between God and man. In the Old Testament book of Job, Job is, is desperately crying out to God and he says, if only there were a mediator, somebody who could stand between God and man and lay his hand upon both of us. Later in the New Testament, Paul says this is exactly who and what Jesus is. He says, for there is only one God and only one mediator standing between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. That's 1 Timothy 2.5. Thirdly, it makes Jesus able to sympathize with us in our weakness. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The God of Christianity is not a God who sits on a faraway mountaintop removed from humanity, looking down on us with indifference. Because of the incarnation, the God of Christianity is a God who knows intimately what it means to be human. There is no suffering, trial, temptation, or tribulation that you have experienced that God does not understand. And he doesn't just understand it abstractly or conceptually, he understands it experientially because he has been human. And that leads us to a final and related point, which is that because of the incarnation, Jesus becomes the perfectly suited representative of humanity to make up where humanity has failed. See, unlike humanity's first representative, Adam, who failed in his calling, Jesus is the faithful representation of humanity, who fulfills God's purposes for us. God's desire from the beginning was to rule his creation with and through human beings. But Adam and Eve, and every subsequent human since then, has failed in that task. But in Jesus, we finally have a faithful representative who can do what humanity was always designed to do. 
And so he becomes our representative and the one which we look to and imitate in order to be truly human. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. The result of this was that you had one man who really was what all men were intended to be. Thus, in one instance, humanity had, so to speak, arrived. That is the whole point. For the first time, we saw a real man. So this is why Christians do not believe that all the different religions of the world are just different paths up the mountain. The Bible, human history, and individual human experience teach us that even if there were various paths to reach God, humanity would not take them. Human beings would be unable and unwilling to ascend that distance to get to God. If there was a mountain with God at the top, collective humanity would stand at the bottom, shake our fists at God, turn around and march in the opposite direction. The good news of Christianity is that God did not wait at the top for humanity to ascend the mountain to get to him. Instead, God himself came down to us. And he didn't just send a representative. He didn't just send a puppet. God came personally down in order to lift us up. So no, Christianity is not just another path up the mountain. Christianity is the good news that in the incarnation, God himself has come down to save us. In the incarnation of Jesus Christ, Jesus has closed the gap between God and man forever.